Hello and welcome to my blog. Today we're going to talk about antimicrobials, the magic bullets that we have currently taken for granted. I'm willing to bet that you've taken at least one antimicrobial at some point in your life. Almost all of us will have developed an infection at some point and been given to uh, drugs to get rid of it. Most of us probably actually owe our lives to medication that has killed the pathogens that have attempted to take over our bodies. And I'm fairly sure I would have died about 10 times over from really trivial things like cuts or an infected tooth. Uh, more likely, I'd have been felled by the horrendous stomach bug I caught, which you can read about um, and how it could have been better managed um, in, my, in my other blog. We really owe an awful lot to antimicrobials. What's quite concerning, though, is that the pathogens are becoming resistant to the antimicrobials that we use which means the drugs that we once used to treat those infections no longer work because the microorganisms have developed ways to stop the drugs functioning. And you can read about how antimicrobial resistance works in my other article that's linked to this one. How do these antimicrobials work in the first place? And are there different types? Uh, you can read on to learn about the drugs that have saved millions of lives. Firstly, it's important to note that the term antimicrobial covers all types of pathogens, uh, not just bacteria, but fungi, parasites and viruses too, and the following definitions might be useful. Antibiotic is a drug that's used to treat a bacterial infection. Antifungal is a drug used to treat a fungal infection. Antimicrobial is the broad term covering drugs that are used to treat bacterial, fungal, viral, parasitic infections. Antiparasitic is a drug used to treat parasites, uh, and antivirals, drugs used to treat viral infections. So first we're going to talk about antibiotics, so for bacteria. And this was the dawn of a new era discovered pretty much by accident. You've probably heard of Alexander Fleming, and you may have even heard about how his rather casual attitude towards laboratory cleanliness when he went on his holiday led to the discovery of penicillin. If you've not heard the story, then there are loads of pages online, and I've linked to one in the blog. The very first antibiotic discovered, um, penicillin, it was just extracted from the mould Penicillium notatum, um, and Fleming found this on his Petri dish, um, and he found that it was, in a, uh, it was able to inhibit the growth of Staphylococcus. The story of how penicillin became mass-produced um, is just as interesting as how it was discovered, and in the beginning, scientists struggled to create enough penicillin to cure even one person. In fact, the uh, first person, the guinea pig, ever to receive penicillin treatment died, uh, not because it didn't work, but because they simply couldn't make enough penicillin to stop the bacteria from eventually taking over his body. And you can read about penicillin's journey from uh, a simple contamination to a vital antibiotic, um, and there's a link in that in the blog. Once we identified one antibiotic, they then came thick and fast. Um, and there's a really good timeline on the REACT website. It only took a few decades to go from the identification of penicillin to the golden era of antibiotics in the 1940s to the 1960s. But since then, there have been very few new types of antibiotics developed. Today, there are barely any new drugs in development. Uh, and you can read about the problem of researching new antibiotics in the link on the blog. Currently, we have a number of different classes of antibiotics in use today, and they work in different ways. Um, and again, the REACT website has a really good um, page about how antibiotics work. And you can read about the different classes of antibiotics in the MSD manual. 
I've also put a, a link to a YouTube video which clearly goes through each of the different classes. Antibiotics can be categorised into broad versus narrow spectrum depending on how they work. Um, there's a good link to um, a video that explains the two, although an overview of the two different groups. Um, broad spectrum antibiotics are antibiotics that can treat many different species of bacteria. Um, they'll act on both gram-positives and gram-negative organisms. They're often used when the cause or the species um, causing the infection is unknown. Um, so this is empirical treatment, uh, which means treating using knowledge and past experience, um, or where there's suspected multiple species infections. Broad-spectrum antibiotics are less discriminatory, um, therefore they're more likely to disrupt your native um, gut flora. So you're more likely to have side effects such as diarrhea because they also kill the good bacteria in your gut as well. Then there's narrow spectrum antibiotics um, and they tend to target only a few very specific species of bacteria. And because they specialize against a small range of species, they minimize the impact on native flora. So they tend to have less side effects. And because they only target certain species, they are less likely to cause the development of antimicrobial resistance. And you can read about why narrow-spectrum antibiotics are good, um, are vital for good stewardship um, in a link on the blog. However, the reason that narrow-spectrum antibiotics aren't used as much generally um, as broad-spectrum ones is because um, you need to know the species causing the infection um, because they only work against a few specific species. So you can't treat empirically and just hope that they will work. You have to have a diagnostic um, test to prove that whatever it is you're treating will actually uh, respond to it. So moving on to antimicrobials, um, and this is trying to hit a very fast moving target. If you thought that we were bad at identifying new antibiotics, then you'll be even less impressed with our progress in finding drugs to treat viral diseases. And you can read a nice review of the history of antimicrobial diseases in the link on my blog. Uh, the, uh, the Fleming of the antiviral world was an excellent lady called Vert, uh, Gertrude Elion, and you can read about her and her research in an article from National Geographic. It's really hard to create drugs to target viruses for a number of reasons. Uh, so firstly, their genome is absolutely tiny, and often they only have a few genes, and therefore there are only a few proteins to actually target. They mutate really quickly, uh, and because they, uh, they replicate very quickly, um, they quickly incorporate natural mutations in their genome. And this makes it really difficult to create a drug that, to target these viral proteins because these targets keep changing. Viruses live within host cells, which means it can be really hard to create drugs that target viruses without destroying the human cells that they're hiding in. Antivirals, similar to antibiotics, target certain parts of a virus's replication strategy. And different types of antiviral targets um, different processes, but because viruses are obligate intracellular pathogens, uh, which means they must use a host cell in order to replicate, um, there are less targets um, and therefore less ways to try and destroy them. Some antivirals can shorten your illness and also reduce symptoms, as, and others can completely remove the virus uh, from the host's body. Um, so examples of antivirals that can both reduce your illness and also remove the virus include ones against flu and Ebola, um, although other viral diseases are chronic, 
which lasts for a very long time, and antivirals can't actually get rid of the virus from your body, although they can improve symptoms. Um, examples of chronic viruses include HIV um, and herpes. Another very common example is chickenpox. Um, once you've recovered from chickenpox, the virus, called varicella zoster, remains dormant in your body and can flare up as shingles later again in life. Moving on to antifungals, um, and who knew we were so closely related to mushrooms? The first antifungal drug, nystatin, was identified by Rachel Brown and Elizabeth Hazen, um, but wasn't painted until 1957. And you can read about the discovery of nystatin, uh, named in honour of New York State Department of Health, uh, where they were working, um, in the link on my blog. Fungal infections often commonly tend to be very mild, localised infections, such as athlete's foot or thrush. However, especially in immunocompromised people, they can cause severe internal infections, such as invasive candidiasis or histoplasmosis. I've put a link to a paper that explains the different classes of antifungal drugs um, on the blog, but antifungals can be broad or narrow spectrum like antibiotics. Um, even more than antibiotics, though, identifying antifungals is challenging uh, because fungus, uh, fungi are more related or more closely related to humans uh, than bacteria are. So fungi and humans are both eukaryotic, whereas bacteria are prokaryotic, meaning that lots of chemicals that kill fungi might also damage human cells, uh, which makes antifungal drugs um, often very toxic with many intolerable side effects. Antiparasitic drugs. Um, and this is a broad range of drugs for a broad range of pathogens. We've actually been treating anti uh, we've been treating parasitic infections for way longer than we've been treating bacterial, viral or fungal ones. Um, and you can read about the history of malaria treatment um, in the link on the blog. A perhaps surprising fact, though, and one that I really, really like, is that parasites themselves were at one point used to uh, technically treat uh, bacterial infections. Before the discovery of penicillin, people ha who had syphilis were often deliberately infected with malaria because being infected with um, the malaria parasite raises a patient's body temperature to such high um, temperatures that the bacteria that cause syphilis couldn't survive. Um, and as there was such a huge stigma around having syphilis um, and you could be treated with quinine to get rid of your malaria, patients often opted for this so-called pyrotherapy. Um, and you can read about the history of malaria as pyrotherapy in the links. Now, because the term parasite covers quite a lot of different organisms, and I mean, technically bacteria, fungi, and viruses are also parasites, the drugs we use to treat them are similarly broad. And so some examples include antiprotozoals. Protozoans are single-celled eukaryotes, um, which cause lots of different human diseases, such as malaria, leishmaniasis, giardiasis, and trypanosomiasis. Um, and you can see some examples of antiprotozoals on NICE's website. Because protozoans are eukaryotes like us, it means that we have more similar cellular functions than, say, bacteria. Um, and again, a bit like fungi, it makes it hard to find drugs that will kill the pathogen without harming us. Um, a, an example of this is the use of melasoprol, uh, which is used to treat human African trypanosomiasis, or HAT, um, a disease that can, co can cause behavioural changes, confusion, coma, and, and ultimately death. 
Melosoprol, which is still a first-line drug um, to treat certain forms of second-stage um, HAT, which is when the parasite has passed into the brain, can cause in itself reactive encephalopathy, uh, which in 3 to 10% of cases is actually fatal. So treating a patient can be as fatal as, as the disease itself. Um, and there's a WHO page that explains the different treatments that are available for HAT. Um, when the drugs that we treat people with have such potentially serious side effects, it puts into perspective this need to, for continuing clinical trials to improve treatment regimens. Um, although thankfully, control programs are reducing the chances of people catching um, human African trypanosomiasis. And you can read about Médecins Sans Frontières report uh, in the link on the blog. Anti-helmetics. Worms, or helmets, are a huge burden, especially in lower middle income countries, not just for people, but also for animals. Uh, and you can read about the different types of drugs used to treat worms in the link. Helmets are also eukaryotes, which me can mean side effects. As many, human, uh, many helmets live in the gut, the easiest way to remove them is to uh, flush them out. Some drugs paralyze the worms so that they can't maintain their position in the gut. Um, and helmets have some many fascinating adaptations to do this, including hooks and suckers. Um, and so when you paralyze them, they can no longer hold on. And so they just fall, fall out of you. Um, and some worms are pretty large, too. I'm sorry, I hope you're not eating or, uh, your dinner. There often isn't a lot of choice when it comes to anti-helmetic drugs either. Um, for instance, praziquantel is still the only widely used drug to treat schistosomiasis. Insecticides and acaricides, also sort of broadly known as pesticides in a generally more environmental kind of term. We use insecticides to treat insect diseases of humans and animals and acaricides to treat eight-legged pests such as ticks and mites. Um, and I've put a link to a page that gives a very good description of the differences between the two. Thankfully, insects, mites and ticks tend to live on skin of the hosts and don't venture any deeper than that. A very common example, and I'm fairly sure you will have had these, are head lice. Um, resistance to the treatments that we have for head lice is a growing problem, and we need to take care when getting rid of them. Uh, there is a long list of treatments, um, as the link to the CDC website says, um, although I have distinct memories of being physically pinned down by my mother and my entire head saturated with thick, slimy conditioner, and then having a knit comb dragged through it repeatedly. Um, and actually medical treatment or otherwise, you need to repeat it multiple times to kill off the eggs or nits as well, because they're surprisingly resistant to drugs and or the suffocation, which is what the conditioner is for. And so you might kill the adults, but then the eggs will hatch and you'll have more adults. And so if you don't treat both, you will continue with your head lice. Um, I'm not sure how well it actually worked, although I was very much glossier than a pedigree spaniel for days afterwards. There are economic and health benefits of drugs to treat pathogens, so we need to look after these precious medicines. We know that there are huge health benefits, of course, but when it comes to the use um, of drugs to treat pathogens, uh, many countless lives have been saved since they were introduced, um, and especially since they became mass-produced and readily available. But there's also a huge economic benefit to the use of these drugs, both for people themselves and especially in economies where many people rely on animals and crops to earn a living. The economic burden of infectious diseases for patients um, 
tuberculosis is a really good example of this um, and how costly infectious diseases can be to the patients um, that catch them. TB is a disease that often develops slowly and the bacteria that causes it is notoriously difficult to kill. Um, they're like the armor-plated tanks of the microscopic world, plus they're able to survive in a dormant phase, which doesn't seem to be very susceptible to drugs. Uh, and this is because many drugs work by targeting the replication process, and if you're dormant, you're not replicating. Um, treatment for TB is anywhere between six months to multiple years, um, and that depends on the amount of drugs that your um, infection is resistant to. And that's a really long time to be sick. Often you can't work, um, often you have to return multiple times uh, to the treatment centre for therapy, which might be a long distance away. Um, in low-income countries, patients can spend large percentages of their income on treatment. Uh, they might have to take out loans or borrow from friends or family. And so having safe and effective drugs to treat, treatment, uh, to treat diseases such as TB um, are vital to reduce this burden on individuals and also countries. Economic benefits of antimicrobial use in animals and crops. The veterinary healthcare market in the UK is estimated to be worth 1,350 million US dollars. That's a lot. Many people around the world rely entirely on the health of their crops or their animals, um, and keeping them alive and well can mean the difference between prosperity or financial ruin, and antimicrobial drugs play a vital role in this. Despite this, we're still only starting to realise the multi-sectoral or one health impact of infectious diseases on our economies. Um, and there's a really good report from the World Organisation for Animal Health, um, which discusses the direct and indirect costs of animal infectious diseases. An example is Nagana, the animal form of human African trypanosomiasis that we looked at earlier, uh, which has caused huge losses for cattle farmers as well as, 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 well as other animals such as horses. Um, it's spread by tsetse flies, um, and there's a good paper from Uganda that suggests by killing the flies, which is relatively cheap, and preventing the disease from spreading, farmers can overall save money, and also obviously cows. What are the issues that we face safeguarding our drugs? Whilst the widespread use of antimicrobials may seem like the answer to our infectious disease prayers, we're starting to lose control of them. All types of pathogens are now exhibiting resistance to the drugs that we commonly use to treat them, meaning that they may no longer be effective. Uh, you can read about how antimicrobial resistance is a growing threat um, in the link to my other article. Counterfeit drugs. Low quality drugs or medication that doesn't contain any of the, in any of the active ingredients are all problematic. Um, and there's a link to a rather sobering article on the counterfeit malaria medication problem. Uncontrolled use of antimicrobials is also a problem. So overuse of genuine drugs can be just as problematic as underuse. A lack of surveillance and suitable diagnostic tests are also a problem which can lead to inappropriate prescribing. And you can read about my run-in with a terrible stomach bug and how antimicrobial stewardship um, was a problem in my other blog. You can also read the plain language summary of our paper looking at how well prepared Africa is to tackle antimicrobial resistance and to safeguard its drugs. Recently, COVID-19 has changed the way we use antimicrobials in some situations. You can read about how COVID-19 is affecting antimicrobial stewardship and our use of drugs here. <laughs>